Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Witch Car Weekly Podcast. My name is Scott Newman, Associate Editor of Moda, and today we have a special guest. He's a racing driver, he's a driver trainer, he's a logistics expert, he is Carl Reindler. Welcome to the Witch Car Weekly Podcast, Carl Reindler. Thanks for having me, Scotty. No problem at all. Uh, so most people would know you probably from your V8 supercars time, but there's many more strings to your bow. So today we'll just have a walk through your career and what's got you to this point. But uh, let's start with what were your first, uh, what your first uh, memories of cars and motorsport? So you grew up in Perth, WA, is that correct? Yeah, I grew up in Perth. Um, I was actually really lucky uh, with the motorsport side of things. Um, People don't realise how much motorsport actually goes on in Perth. It's not just Barbagallo Raceway. Um, I was fortunate. Um, one of my best mates growing up, um, his father was um, quite involved in the drag racing scene down at Ravenswood before it ended up down at um, Quinana, where it is currently. And um, my, my earliest memory, I just get stuck straight into the thick of it, was um, when my mate's dad was going for a, a world record in a jet truck and we were in this glass glass um, corporate box and, and I reckon I would have been three years old and <laughs> I'm set, set, hands up against the, uh, the glass window pane as he's lit the afterburner to, to do a, I think it was a six and a half second run off the top of my head. Jesus. And, um, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I pissed myself. I actually pissed myself on the spot. So that's <laughs> my earliest memory of of motorsport and, and cars and automotive. But at the same time, my my dad was heavily involved in um, Wanneroo Raceway at the time, or uh, now as we know at Barbagello, and um, uh, he was the vice president president down there for a, for a period of time. He raced himself. He had a um, plethora of uh, different different race cars that I grew up with, um, mostly rotaries, actually. He had okay. uh, old Alan Moffat, um, left-hand drive Daytona um, RX-7, which I didn't think anything of at the time. I just grew up and had this obnoxious peripheral port rotary <laughs> wah, 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 yeah. in, the, you know, in the garage at 10 o'clock at night. And um, they'd do tuning runs around the block and you'd, you'd hear it three suburbs. You know, Popular North with South. the neighbours then. Yeah, so um, we uh, we grew up in Como, just just south of the river, and um, I think Dad had a bit of a reputation for, for some of the cars that he uh, he had access to. But <laughs> the other the other part was um, was Speedway. We had um, one of the I think it was the original Speedway um, at Claremont Speedway. It was it was incredible. So every other Friday night, I'd be down watching sprint cars um, racing around on the on the dirt, and I still remember that. The smell of that, um, yeah, the, the unique smell of, of Speedway, the unique smells down at the dragway. And I, I feel like I look back now and, and, and a lot of these memories of Cedroni just come back to me recently. And I, I feel like I almost didn't have a choice but to get into, into motorsport. And um, eventually I did. I bit the bullet and I, I, my dad was in mining and exploration. So I, I started driving cars when I was six or seven years old out in the middle of nowhere. Um, sitting on dad's lap in uh, usually a beat up old 80 series land cruiser or something troop carrier. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but uh, yeah, out in the middle of the bush, just driving cars and, and then eventually got a go-kart when I was, I think 10 or 11 years old. And um, 
at obviously at that age, it's just just for fun. Um, yep. You you don't think about all the the fun things and cool things that you can do um, later on. And um, yeah, I look back pretty fondly of it. And and yeah, I call Melbourne home now, which uh, which you know. And I've been here since uh, 2011. But um, yeah, some great great memories of back in Perth. And it's really unfortunate that the speedways shut down um, at, at Claremont, but that, that precinct down at Quinana is such a, such a great facility. Excellent. And when did it start to get serious? So when did, when did the go-kart morph into, hey, this, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I presume it's when it usually starts. Like I've, I've, I'm, you know, I've got a talent for this. Uh, let's try and start racing or get, start competing. I think the turning point, I enjoyed it. I had a hell of a lot of fun. It's, it, believe it or not, uh, Karting, while it can be expensive, it's as sort of expensive as you want it to be. Um, it's a great family sport. We we toured up and down um, the coast in in WA as far north as Newman, which is about twelve hundred kilometres drive away. Um, as far south as sort of Esperance, which is a good seven and a half hours drive from Perth. Um, my brother and sister would race as well, but again, it wasn't until a mate of mine from school started racing and. He came straight into it and was obviously a very competitive guy. And um, it used to piss me off that he was so competitive so quickly. And this kind of spurred this, um, you know, the, the, this sort of fire in the belly that this competitiveness that I, I knew was there, but it took something to kind of extract it. And um, Steve was his name. And um, he went on, he's done, Steve Jones actually, he uh, went on, he's won. Targa, Targa West oh, yeah. and, yep. I know the name. and yep. really competitive in GDRs and things like that. And very different personalities, Steve and I, but um, yeah, it's, it was probably him that kind of spurred me on that inner sort of competitiveness. And um, I um, would have been 13 or 14 at the time. I was starting to compete at a, at a national level. Um, CIK it was back then. So hundred CC, um, pretty potent, you know, sort of 18, 19,000 RPM revving revving motors um, against, you know, m most of the guys in supercars at the moment have been through the CIK sort of pathway of karting. And, and it's such a great place to learn your, your race craft and um, hone your skills and all those things that everyone talks about. And it was probably at that point I started testing a Formula Ford as well up at, uh, up at Barbagello with Brett Lupton. And um, yeah, I, um, I enjoyed it. I was a bit intimidated at first by by the car as opposed to the go-kart which i just uh, thrived in that environment i loved loved driving the go-kart you know it intricately but um it was nice to i did enjoy i remember enjoying the experience of being uncomfortable being out of my comfort zone and, and having a new challenge and that's something that i really i feel like i latched on to throughout um my career both both overseas and within australia and really enjoyed that feeling of being uncomfortable, like yeah. So I was probably fifteen, I reckon. Um, it's that's a long answer. The short answer is I was probably about fifteen. No, that's good. Long answers are good. We got you know plenty of time. The beauty of a podcast. Um, obviously, going to Formula Ford is a pretty regular first step for the you know for the aspiring racers. Um, and there's not a lot out there about sort of the intermediate steps between, let's say, your first Formula Ford test at fifteen, and then. You had a lot of success in Australian F3, so maybe fill in the gaps there. Maybe what, what about six or seven years between 15 and tw early 20s about that first step of taking that uh, test with the Formula Ford to 
essentially starting to win races in premier single seaters. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I tested the Formula Ford a lot and, and I still reckon it's, it's absolutely got a place in this country. I know there's sort of um, mixed, mixed opinions on, on Formula Ford. Yes, it's old technology, but far out. The, the, the craft that you learn, um, the way that the things move around and they're just there's something agricultural about them as well. Um, in the end, we decided that with what we were achieving in karting in CIK, going, I don't know, we, we spoke, we had a, we were lucky, we had a lot of people that we could talk to um, that really understood the industry well. And we asked a lot of questions and did our homework and decided, well, maybe it's not the best pathway to go down. We looked at, obviously, we, it's a cost decision, right? Uh, as well, you know, it's, it's still bank, bank of dad and a couple of sponsors that, uh, lucky to to fund you know to fund any motor racing at that those early stages but we decided to test a formula three car and went to adelaide went out to malala which is a cracking little circuit and um i'm sure have you been have you turned laps around malala yeah i did lexus uh, gsf launch there once which is a pretty random it's, place it's to do pretty, a launch but uh yeah, old school and yeah technical but that was my first experience of, uh, of an f3 car which is a pretty big step up uh yeah. in pace uh, it's one of the fastest cars in the country, frankly. It'll, it'll do a, a 23 at, at Easton Creek, which is some seven seconds quicker than a V8 supercar. Um, Phillip Island, one of the fastest things that have ever turned laps around Phillip Island. And this was my, effectively my step out of carts. We, we didn't think Formula Ford was appropriate given the grip level, um, power to weight sort of numbers that we were basically where I was cutting my teeth and carting, it seemed more appropriate to go wings and slicks. Um, at that stage, Formula 4 didn't exist. There was no gap between uh, the guys in the last few years have been, I think, really lucky to have that um, that option of both Formula Ford and Formula 4. And we'll probably get to the conversation, but obviously heavily involved in Formula 4 uh, as, as their driving standards advisor uh, in this country. But um yeah, it was a big step, bloody intimidating car, um, crazy fast. The aero, everyone talks about the aero, aero and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but um, that, that really is the hardest part to get your head around, just trusting it, knowing that you, sometimes you actually need to carry a bit more speed into a corner to give it a bit more stability. Yeah. Um, pitch sensitivity as well, it's, it's another great car for learning. But um, I think the important thing, looking back now, just i think the important thing is to try try your hand at a number of different things adaptability is important i look at the some of the other they're not kids anymore but some of the kids that were coming through the last few years will will brown's a perfect example i look at what he's achieved in motorsport with um you know there was that one year i think he tackled toyota 86 series formula four and formula ford and just about one or three and and to me you know the advice i give to kids these days is um is versatility and and adaptability, they're the most important things. Your ability to jump into a car you've never driven in your life and find out what makes it click and, and just get on with it. Was uh, was the test, though, even though Formula Ford wasn't deemed the right path, was it still important to have that experience? Because obviously, jumping straight from a car to an F3 car, you're going to have to not only deal with slewings and slicks, but suddenly you've got the surroundings of a car, you've got gears to change you've got different setup um did at least having that intermediate step help or could you theoretically have gone from a cik to an f3 or would that be just too big a step 
Look, I think you can, but the question is whether it's the right thing to do. And I think yeah. what I did in Formula Ford, the, the, you know, a few, I don't know, it would have been maybe eight or nine test days with Brett up at Barbagallo definitely, definitely helped with that transition. I couldn't imagine, despite the experience that I had in karting, making that huge monumental step mm. to a Formula 3 car. Um, it is a sensory overload in terms of the amount of additional um, responsibilities in the car. Like, yes, it's got a gear stick now. And it was an H pattern as well. And that thing oh, really? not a, or certainly not paddle shift like they've got now. Um, I freaking still got calluses and um, <laughs> up joints from smacking the, the carbon monocoque. Um, it was usually the uh, third to fourth gear change. It was a five speed gearbox, but um, yeah, um, the, the aero, the, the gearbox, the suspension, um, understanding the mechanics of it as well. I was pretty keen on actually getting amongst it. I know I had my role and my, my role was to be the driver, but at the same time, uh, I was studying engineering at the time and I thought it's really important for me as a driver to better understand how the car actually works. So it got to the point where I'd actually changed my own uh, gearboxes between, between races, check the, they, they had a, really weak third gear from memory. So you just about after every single session, you'd, you'd strip it back, check that you didn't, um, you hadn't busted up any of the, uh, the dog rings and uh, the gears were all good and you'd, you'd, you'd reassemble of it. So I can, I think about, it, I can still smell that um, gearbox oil, which is pretty potent stuff. Oh, it's like such a good uh, smell, isn't it? You can use it as perfume. Yeah, just about. Yeah. <laughs> People. If you if you like isolation, gearbox. <laughs> so you were uh, you were chief mechanic, you were technical director, you were driver, you were the whole F one team in one. Uh, look, I, I I dabbled with everything else just to gain a better understanding, a more holistic kind of view of 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 it all. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was lucky the environment that I was in was with Team BRM, which are really um, still a very reputable team in this country. They've won a heap of championships in different categories, uh, dabbled in Porsche Carrera Cup uh, for a few years there. They do a lot of really cool things behind the scenes that, that a lot of people don't, um, that probably don't see. They manage a few uh, F1 cars, old like 80s, 90s oh, yeah. F1 cars, seriously cool cars. But um, it was a really nice environment to, to learn. And uh, my only criticism is they probably weren't, probably weren't tough enough on me at the time. I, I look at, uh, yeah, like the, Michael Ritter kind of pathway and he's got a reputation for being pretty hard on his, um, on his guys. And, um, I, I wish I'd had it tougher, uh, in that environment. And while I learned a lot and, and it was a nice place to be, I would have, I look back and think I would have rathered a bit more criticism and, you know, hard, hard conversations at, at the time. Uh, cause that step from Australia to Europe, which I made in, what was that? 2005 was my first year overseas. It was like nothing else. I was not prepared, just yeah. flat not prepared for that move. And I, here I was thinking, you know, I've, I've just won an Australian championship in F3, which I was obviously very proud of um, at, at the time, still very proud of, but to, to go to Europe and I think my first ever race event in Europe, was at Bahrain. It was the Bahrain F3 Super Prix, which is sort of unofficially considered, I kind of like the unofficial junior world championship, I guess, at the time. That was 2004. So at the end of the season, 
had won the championship uh, in October at the Gold Coast Indy Indy race um, while there were Indy cars still competing there. Um, and then December, I went and competed against Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, um, to name a couple of guys, not to we just pick up those names I've just dropped there, but uh, half the field, Alex Pramat was in there as well. Um, huge portion of the current F1 grid, Chibitza, I think was there, uh, were racing. And, and honestly, I got slaughtered. Absolutely. <laughs> I finished 13th out of 32 or something like that in a well, wet race. You beat, you beat 20 other people. I, look, I was, I was, it, it comes back to expecta- expectations and I expected more of myself. I, I went with a team called Swiss Racing Team who had a real mad scientist engineer at the forefront. And the, the beauty about Formula 3 as a category is um, it's a, or there's obviously um, there's limitations of what you can and can't do with the car, but it's largely open, like like what Formula One is. If you want to go and redesign your own rear wing, um, while there might be maximum widths and 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 heights and things like that, go to town. If you've got an engineer that's got access to a wind tunnel, design your own rear wing, design your front wing, wing your um, your floor, um, you name it. It's it's all it's a pretty open category like that. Um, with some constraints um, to cap it. So um, we had this mad scientist, um, Swiss engineer who, um, I'm not pointing the finger, oh, it's easy to point the finger in motorsport, but I, I swear he engineered the thing to a standstill. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't a pretty thing to drive, but, but all in all, it was a really great experience for me to, uh, to go and race that event. And I think I have statistically six days of rain in Bahrain every year, and we've got three of them. Um, yeah, right. Friday and Sunday. So hadn't had much wet racing for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, it was, um, again, I mentioned baptism of fire. There's plenty of baptisms of fire that I'm going to probably talk about during our conversation. That was certainly one of them. We jump forward to the Australia, uh, we jump forward to the overseas stuff, but yeah, let's have some quick thoughts about your success in Australia. Um, I think uh, I was wondering whether your, Success in Australia, and you said you weren't necessarily pushed enough. And when, when you over, went overseas, there was sort of another level to go to. Was that sort of part of it? You were being successful in Australia, but there was more in you and the car? Um, a bit of both. I mean, you ask 99% of drivers, and they're, they're, they are their own biggest critic. And that was, that was always the case. I pushed myself hard, but probably when it came to... Um, you know, when, when, it did, when we didn't have a good day, uh, didn't go to plan or mistakes were made, whether it was my mistake or someone else's mistake that resulted in a, you know, a, a poorer performance. Um, just, just being tougher in those situations, I guess. Um, just being told some hard truths. Like if, if I stuffed up, I wanted to know I stuffed up, not beat around the bush about it. And um, it, the engineer I had, um, Ian Richards, was was reasonably tough on me, but but the environment was a pretty pretty casual, um, chilled out sort of environment. And look, that suits some some kids growing up, and, and maybe maybe it was the best um, best place for me to be at the time. But the, the I don't think anything would have really prepared me in Australia at the time for European racing. Um, yes, we got some, we had some great results. Um, 
we won a championship, uh, came down to, I think, the last race of the last round of the, the se- season, which, uh, which is always, uh, always dramatic and exciting if you're on the sidelines watching. But uh, the, uh, the anxiety and the, the nerves um, when, when you're in that position, it's, um, yeah, it's good. Uh, so, so who are some of the guys you'd raced against? Uh, like a video, as we spoke about the other day, a video came up on Twitter recently of you battling tooth and nail with Tim Slade. So some of the guys you were swapping uh, track and occasionally wheels with at that time, who were, who were they? Who were you fighting against? Yeah, I mean, the, that's the other thing. Australian Formula 3, the quality of racing was, was pretty good, but, but also almost a little too respectful. And, um, and that's the, probably, when I say I wasn't prepared, um, the pace was one thing, but the, the, just how hard the racing was in Europe. And, and, and you make mention of guys like, like Tim, um, who came in at just, just for that standalone round, I think, at, uh, at Malala. And it was great to see. I watched the same footage and um, I had a bit more hair back then. <laughs> uh, you probably did too, mate. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that. That's great. <laughs> and... <laughs> And um, he, he brought that hard racing because he'd, he'd come from the Formula Ford side of things. And I think at the time, probably still to this day, um, the, the race, racing in Formula Ford, I think, is a lot more aggressive, wheel to wheel, you know, just banging wheels left, right and centre, which is kind of the, um, the education you need. Um, obviously, sometimes you end up uh, you know, off, off the road when that happens. But at the same time, it's, it's all, you're better figuring it out in the early, earlier um, like junior formulas as opposed to finding out the hard way further down the line when there's a lot more money um, and, and up, you know, more at stake, I guess. So yeah, Tim, um, Ian Dyke as well. You probably know Ian quite well, who's, who's one of the best uh, automotive photographers in this country now. Uh, also an A1GP driver for Australia. Um, uh, Chris Gilmore, who's in property development now, but was fiercely competitive back in the day. Um, Barton Moore was in there, who's obviously yep. won World Time Attack challenges. Um, it's just, it just an Australian F3. Um, there were a couple of standalone appearances. Marcus Marshall jumped in for a round. Who else? I, I did two seasons in Australian F3, but then did a couple of um, standalone sort of appearances later on when I came back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mid-season breaks just to, to keep my eye in. And um, yeah, it was... It was a lot of fun in Australian F3, but not as not as hard a, uh, an education as as what I would I wanted it to be. Making that transition to Europe. Well, that's a good segue into so 2005. You moved to British F3, and I suppose while it's British F3, it's kind of is it fair to say that that's almost world F3? Like that's where a lot of the main teams are. A lot of where where you know future F1 drivers go to cut their teeth. Um, yeah. With that move, what was the end goal? I mean, was it was Formula One the end goal, or was it a case of let's just go as far as it can go, or what was the sort of thinking back then? Because it's a pretty big move to make financially, and I suppose in terms of life for a young guy. Yeah, for sure, it's a it's a huge move. I think I was nineteen, maybe twenty at the time when I made the move to to the UK, and that in itself is is a huge huge move to make. Um, pick Especially up coming everything. from Perth, it'd be a bit of a, a bit of a culture shock. It was a culture shock. Uh, I was living um, in, in Silverstone Village my first year with, with a nice family. I raced with Alan Docking Racing, who uh, Will Power raced for, uh, Mark Weber raced for, um, for Alan as well. Um, several other you know, 
past past champions as as well. Um, yeah, it was a it was a big move um, in so many different ways. Like you talk about the difference in, in culture, just not having family and friends around. But but at the same time, the best part about it was you were living and breathing motorsport every single day. Um, it as you say, it was more of a, a European championship as opposed to British. But but as you say, a lot of a lot of Formula One drivers and Formula One champions had come through F3 at the time, and it was it was highly regarded as the junior junior category to to be in to um, to prove yourself and, and make a name. And and I think at the time, my goal uh, and ambition was to be in Formula One. We didn't have any sort of management per se. It was really Dad and I, and we were guessing and asking questions. Um, Doco himself, as as the team owner, um, was quite influential and um, a good sounding board for things like that. And always felt gave a pretty honest appraisal on what we should be doing and and how how we should be doing it. We went over there with next to no budget, like most young Aussies. I missed the first couple of rounds of the season. Did no preseason testing. I got to the my first round was Monza in Italy. First round in in, uh, in F3 in Europe, and I start off at uh, the fastest circuit of them all. And uh, I I think half the guys, apart from having completed several rounds of the season already, had probably racked up 30 or 40 days of pre-season testing, like 80, 90 sets of tyres. And I've come in off the back of a pretty long hiatus from the Bahrain race, which would have been my most recent events in, in the December of the year before. And um, it ended up coming away with a really good result that first weekend through a little bit of luck. And, uh, but at the same time, you've, you've got to be, got to be amongst it. I think I finished sixth or seventh in one of the races and there were really good fields, 25, 30 cars in, in British F3 at the time. Um, but I remember I, I, I clearly, this is 2005, 15 years ago now. And I remember, like it was yesterday, this moment coming down the front straight at Monza at 270 kilometres an hour, being forced into the um, uh, into the pit wall, banging wheels on one side, scraping the uh, the pit wall with the t- you know the, the side that the uh, it was uh, it was an Avon tyre at the time, and the uh, the branding on both sides of the tyres was scraped off um, at 270 kilometres an hour, and I was just what like what the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> I'm not ready for this. Who am I kidding? This is like, I thought the, uh, the Bahrain race was tough. This is, yeah, this right. is again, um, uh, Nelson PK was racing that year. There was Charlie Kimball as well, who ended up racing Indy cars. Um, oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to bore you with, with some of the names that were racing, but um, a lot of suddenly them, they were playing for keeps. Yeah, they're not stuffing around and, and money's no object to these guys. Here I am, this Aussie on a shoestring budget uh, who can't afford to damage his car, which is not a great headspace to go into. If, if you're thinking about that, you're, you're more inclined to cause some damage, to get, to get tied up. And uh, uh, trying to get that mindset, like just delete that mindset and just get on with it is a really difficult um, hurdle to overcome. So... Yeah, I um, I enjoyed the experience. We didn't finish the season off. I think we did five or six rounds in that first season with Doco. Um, had some up and down races. We raced at the Nurburgring, uh, not the Nordschleife, the the actual F1 circuit. 
went to Po in France, which is a, a cracking street circuit, such a great street circuit. Um, did Donington, Silverstone, um, Brands Hatch, all the, the iconic circuits that as a kid, you kind of grow up watching and hearing about. And I, I probably took it for granted at the time, but it, it was pretty special. I, I remember moments where I did have to pinch myself thinking far out. Here I was, you know, just last year racing at, at, at no disrespect, but a Winton or a Sandown, which I still love, don't get me wrong, great circuits. And here I am at, you know, we, we raced at Spa as well. I can't remember what was the first year or the second year, but uh, the first year led to a second year. Again, we missed the first round. We jumped in at Donington, a wet Donington race and had a great season opener for me. But again, we missed that 30, 40 pre-season testing days. Um, everything we did was a bit half-assed. And if I have any regrets at all, it's probably that we did it half-assed, but at the same time, kind of didn't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. We had the money that we could, we could scrounge together. Dad was working hard on, um, on that side of things. Um, you know, leaning on, leaning on anyone and everyone that he could, that he, that he knew work colleagues, et cetera, to, um, to pull this thing together. And, and we, we, I'm still proud of just being able to go over there and, and achieve what we did. Um, in hindsight, if you're going to go over there, you do it properly or you don't do it at all. That's the lesson I learned. You, you go with a, at the time it was a Carlin or a double R. Um, I don't know who's, who the big players are now in, uh, in F3 or, you know, there's, there's a, there's a number of different big, big players, depending on what series you're in. But uh, if you're going to do it, you, you don't stuff around. You, yeah. you find the money, you do it properly. If it means you've got to take a year off and, and, and every year counts as well. Cause as you know, with the, the Max Verstappens of the world, the drivers are just getting younger and younger. And I think kids in Australia are really on the back foot that the sooner they can get over there, the better, but there's just certain things you can't fast track. You, no. you kind of have time and there's not really many opportunities now to, to do that time per se. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned some of the circuits. I've got a, yeah, as you mentioned, Powell, Monaco, Spa, Silverstone, Donington. Um, was there a was there a standout? Was there a track like maybe you know being a racing driver, you tend to probably like the ones you do well at. But uh, it was there a track that you sort of clicked with or that you particularly enjoyed? You're, you're right. Firstly, you you click with the circuits you do well at, but at the same time, you you have a rivalry with a circuit at the same time, and and the ones that really challenge you. There's a, there's a pretty good reason why I'm going to just throw a number out there that 95% of drivers in Australia say that Bathurst is their favorite circuit is because it just challenges the hell out of you. That circuit, it's intimidating. It's relentless. There's zero margin for errors. You've, you've turned laps around there yourself together, actually, but it's a lot of fun. Um, You make a mistake at Bathurst and you, you're going to hurt yourself most of the time, not to be dramatic. That's the reality. Um, you see it regularly and there's something pretty um, exciting about that. You, you realize most drivers forget about the fact that the sport is considered dangerous. They don't perceive it to actually be dangerous in the slightest. Um, there's always, always excuses when people talk about the safety and the danger of motorsport and, we can reel out all the statistics you like about other sports being more dangerous, but the reality is when you're doing warp speed around a circuit like Bathurst, you're compounding your issues, I think. 
your, your life insurance premium goes up accordingly. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, tricky circuits, you also got the opportunity to race at Macau, which is kind of, you know, the blue Raban event for F3 for single seaters, you know, Hacken and mm. Schumacher, Kibitz, uh, Hamilton, all these guys, and you managed to race there. And that is surely, I've only obviously seen it on onboards and videos and stuff, but surely that's about as daunting as circuits get narrow fast no you know concrete walls everywhere so how was that experience i i mean i mean what i'm about to say with with the hugest amount of respect but um macau makes bathurst looks like look like child's play yeah it's it's lunacy it's absolute lunacy um and they race motorbikes there <laughs> like, Motorbike scooter, they've got a scooter race. In fact, Scotty, when you get a chance, you and I were going to go to Macau one November in the in the next couple of years for a for a reconnaissance trip over there. Okay, sounds good. Show you what it's all about. But <laughs> it is a circuit. You go up the side of a mountain, down the down the other side of the mountain, round this water reservoir. You've got some of the fastest corners on on any circuit in the world, but lined with with armco and, and it's not just ordinary armco you hear stories about motorbike riders clipping the armco and there's a bolt that protrudes out and it rips a hole through their arm i've heard about bike riders high sizing it now high siding it i should say um and landing in the water reservoir um <laughs> some, some people have drowned in a motor racing event at macau it's it's phenomenal in in a kind of sadistic way it's it's Awful when you think about it, but and you, for the biggest crashes, you know, in, in history at Macau as well, that, that F3 crash from two years ago, I forget mm. the young, young girl's name that, that had that crash. Lucky. That was an airplane crash. Really, yeah, it was like an airplane crash. And, and I, to, I still can't believe that no one was seriously hurt, photog- both on the, on the spectator side of the fence as well as on track. But you talk um, about as a driver, the ultimate challenge brings the ultimate reward. I mean, yeah. surely if you are then nailing a few corners or a lap there, you get a buzz. Like that must be high level when, stuff. When you get it, when you get it right, when you feel like you're you're finally clicking with the circuit, and you, everyone talks about flow, not only about this every circuit. There's a flow and a rhythm that you kind of find in a circuit, and and Macau's no different. And it it takes a bit of time. And you've got to you've got to creep up to it at at, at Macau. And and I think something I I had intentions of racing back to back years at Macau. I never got back to to do it a second time around. It's another uh, minor regret that I have um, in, in, in my time. But um, the first year I, I, I had every intentions of partaking in every single lap of every single session. And I did exactly that. And like you say, there's some, some, big, uh, some big names that were racing. Vettel was racing that year, Kubica, who to me is one of the most talented drivers on the planet, that guy, um, hands down. Lucas Degrassi, who's obviously Formula E, champion i believe last year possibly but uh um uh, Romain Grigion was racing as well we lined up side by side on the grid together for the final and um it's a it's a special place and the history that's there there's no way in hell that a circuit like that will be allowed to be approved in this day and age it's it's like a monarchy it's only because of the historical mm. component that it that, that they're allowed to go racing there because it's, as I said at the start, it's bonkers that, that you, people face there. How do you approach a track like that? You're a young driver. You want to make an impression. You're in a real fast car. 
without the money, like the fast guys to tear it up into pieces. Like that was my thing when I drove around Bathurst. It's like, I don't understand how you get a lap around there because eventually you lock a brake, you have a sideways moment and at Winton, Sandown, you run over the gravel trap or whatever, you have a spin. You can't do that there. You ricochet between the walls. So how do you build up to that speed you need without turning the thing into a canoe? Well, this, this leads me to the second uh, cracking story, I think. We've got the ping myself watching a, a six-second <laughs> run a quarter mile with a 30,000-pound thrust jet hanging off the back of it. Um, we didn't have simulators back then. It really wasn't a thing unless you're a Formula One team. It took 15 years ago. It's obviously every man and their dog has a simulator now. But um, how you learn a circuit like Macau, like I looked at footage, but there wasn't really any onboard footage I could find. It was maybe... Pre-YouTube you know, too, wouldn't it? Pardon? Would have been pre-YouTube. Like you can't even go on YouTube now and just pile up a lap. Pre-YouTube. I managed to find a lap of uh, Ralph Furman, uh, the Irish driver in a Jordan F1 car, which is completely inappropriate level of speed compared to an F3 car. He was doing a just a showcase kind of lap around there. And uh, that's where I got to know the corners, which, which corner comes next and all of that. But obviously every track you go to, you do a track walk. That's the first step. But the, the, the story I'm about to tell you, they, this particular year, for whatever reason, stupidly maybe, they gave every team a mini muck. <laughs> learn the track so here you have these young <laughs> arrogant young race car drivers with a fleet of mini mokes a fleet of them around the most notorious daunting relentless circuit on the planet um and, and with with very little respect for public road rules and as i'm sure you can imagine there was a like bump drafting down the front straight. So it was every team. So it was myself and my teammate in one car. So we swapped over, we'd swap over and take turns, which is frightening because I wasn't, you know, no race, no race driver likes being in the passenger seat. We're all control freaks to some extent. And um, best time to go out was usually in the evening. There's far less traffic. You still had to deal with it. It wasn't shut down as a circuit. So I remember the Wednesday night, 10 p.m., nice and quiet, take the moke out. Let's let's go out there for a bit of a bit of a fang, and we're just kind of building up the intensity, starting to lean on the uh, lean on the tire a little bit, and it gave up pretty easily being a mini moke. Yeah. Um, I fell in love with mini mokes off the back of this experience, by the way. Um, and we're building up, and next minute, I, I hear this noise behind me. I look in the the rear vision mirror, which is vibrating violently because there is basically no suspension in one of those things, and. Um, there's this, like, I think it was a Civic Type R. It was night time, but I recognised the noise, the, the VTEC kicking in or whatever it was, and, um, and the headlights, and I, I, I caught a glimpse of it. So I've knocked it back a gear, and the intensity keeps rising and rising. And I remember being up the top section of the, um, top section of the, uh, the circuit over the mountain. I remember going through this long, sweeping left hand. It was probably, in a race car, probably would have been, I don't know, second or third gear, probably third gear in an F3 car, I reckon. It's a reasonably pacey corner. I was, I was on the absolute limit that this little mini moke was capable of and concentrating accordingly. And I remember hearing this bang, looking up in my rear view, and the Civic Type R had fenced it in the armco trying to keep up. So, oh. And of course, like, what do you do? I was, I was like 19 or 20 years old. I was like, press on, press on. Yep. 
So um, yeah, that's that's how that's how you learn a circuit. Okay, in, in a mini uh, moke. Five. What right. was that, mate? Uh, for a mini in a mini moke, you need a mini moke to Bathurst or something. It wouldn't even make it up the hill, would it? A mini moke, probably not. Oh, I don't think it would. You'd be out pushing the damn thing. <laughs> uh, the next step on your open wheeler career. I mean, we haven't even got to the V8 supercar stuff. We might have to do a six-part series here. Um, A1GP, again, another international thing. A1GP, obviously, cool idea. Didn't quite work out, but you were selected as Australia's driver along with some other very good drivers. Ryan Briscoe, Ian Dyke, you mentioned. Um, I think maybe Will Power did a couple of races as well. Anyway. Um, Will Power, uh, Will Davison, yeah. Yep, um, yep. So you did Marcus some... Marshall. You did and, some really um, cool tracks. What sort of what was what, what were some of the highlight tracks for you? Because you went to sort of unusual tracks that you wouldn't see necessarily on the F one calendar. Yeah, um, some really fun, exciting circuits. That 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 experience in A one GP was was sensational. Those cars compared to the F three that I'd been driving um, was obviously a huge level up in in performance. So it was going from two hundred and thirty horsepower. Um, which doesn't sound like much, but in open wheeler terms, it's still, a, you know, they're, they're way faster than a supercar um, to sort of 550 horsepower. So I've doubled my horsepower and then some. The weight's gone up, but the cars just lacked, lacked refinement like a Formula 3. A Formula 3 car was all about finesse and, and just managing the, the aero and the, obviously the weight distribution, all those sorts of things. The A1GP... I had to teach myself to hustle a bit more. I never had to really do that previously. And I remember the very first test day in the car was a trial for the Australian, well, it was a trial for everyone uh, for, to basically test, test all the drivers they wanted to test. And it was at Silverstone. And, and I remember, um, remember the first experience going down, it was a shortened circuit, so we weren't going down the hangar straight, but the cut through between um i remember the first time getting on the throttle properly like i meant it with conviction and actually hitting hitting the revs i needed to for that 550 odd horsepower and just giggling just giggling like like a kid this is this is absurd how quick this this thing is um i, I it was just the best feeling in the world no, at the time it was nothing better it was uh yeah i'd, I'd never because I'd always focused on the sport, I'd <laughs> I'd never dabbled, you know, in, in, in recreational drugs or anything. But at the time, <laughs> I'm thinking far out. This is like a drug. This is how good is this? I want more. What's and then I, I felt uncomfortable about it, about the pace for the first few laps. But it's incredible how quickly you can adapt to that newfound um, pace and intensity. And uh, within a few laps, I started to feel like I was really leaning on it and, and the times were reflective of it and felt like I was really coming into my own and I was just couldn't help but think at the end of that day, like, what's next? So I, I want to drive something even quicker again. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so addictive, as, as you know. It's uh, something about having a car on the absolute limit. It doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, some weekend warrior car doing a track day or a, you know, million-dollar sports car. It's something something pretty special about finding the limit of a car. And uh, that was no different in the A1 GP. And, and the day went really well. And I became the rookie driver um, to some of the more seasoned campaigners. Like you, you mentioned, Will Power, Will Davison, Ryan Briscoe. In fact, it was Ryan and I that started the 06, 07 
season off together. So he was the the main driver. I was the um, uh, the rookie driver. So I, I basically got to turn laps at the circuits in the very first practice session before Ryan. I handed the reins over to Ryan, um, gave a bit of direction on on engineering and, and gave some feedback, and then basically sat and observed, observed, uh, watched, and, and learned as much as I possibly could, given you know the wealth of experience that Ryan Ryan had. Um, he, would done, the, he would have done F1 testing by then, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was Before, all. So uh, he was pretty experienced. Oh, for sure. He'd, he'd achieved a lot. And at the, I, I looked up to Ryan a lot. And to have him as a, unofficially as a mentor within the team was, was a really neat thing to, to have access to. And um, he was awesome as a teammate. He was more than happy to sit down and have a chat about um, yeah, the car, the engineering, his thoughts. Just he was, he was an open, open book, which was, you know, I think reflects in his personality um, in, in general. So my, my first taste of the car after Silverstone was probably at Zandvoort, I think. Um, and Ryan ended up getting a podium finish there, which is a pretty exciting experience to be in the green and gold colours. I know I didn't drive to that podium finish at Zandvoort, but I still felt like I contributed and was part of the, part of the team. And it was, it was a pretty special moment um, for everyone. But, um, and then there was a couple of races where Ryan couldn't, couldn't compete as the lead driver. And I was lucky enough to, um, to get the, uh, the steering wheel handed to me for, for those rounds. So the first one, I think, was Czech Republic, the Bruno circuit, which is quite an undulating circuit, long, uh, a lot of long sweeping corners, some, some quite quick chicanes, um, a little sort of Mugello-esque, I guess. And um, really struggled in that first round. And... Oh, no, sorry. There was another round at uh, Sepang, I think, between then. And, and Ryan, long story short, we had a great setup with our, in our car for the rough, bumpy, technical street circuit kind of um, tracks. Um, like Zandvoort, that's quite rough and bumpy. Um, but we, we got to Sepang, and, and I think Ryan qualified 16th. And we're just we're scratching our heads, all of us. None of it, we couldn't figure out what was, what was going wrong. And then I went to Bruno and same deal, being a fast and flowing circuit, really struggled. And then it was the next round after that, they had this weird street circuit in China, in Beijing, and really rough and bumpy. Like <laughs> they had to adjust, they had to get the FIA in to um, reapprove the circuit because there was this hairpin that the cars physically couldn't get around. <laughs> uh, they tried to sweep it under the carpet, but they literally had to um, re- redo the entire track because. The first car got there, the very first practice session, full lock from full track width, <laughs> make it around. Despite all the calculations, someone seriously got that wrong. But there were, there were manhole covers that were lifting with the ground effects and being thrown yeah, into right. the stands, which were thankfully not filled with anyone. It was as rough as they come as far as street circuits, but the car was strong there. And I managed to get a, a third place finish, which was, I look back still and think that's one of the highlights of my career. I have amazing photos of me standing on the podium with um, with a with a bronze medal around uh, you know around my neck and the green and gold and you just felt like a just a really proud Aussie that day and like a uh, motorsport Olympian. Yeah, yeah, and it was the, the year before the Beijing Olympics as well. So it was um, that was a really cool experience. And then um, I did another race in South Africa, which was going really well until um, your own Bleeker and the Dutch driver. 
uh, exited his pits and drove straight into the side of me and, and ended our race. And then um, that was basically the end of it. I think I was involved for five weekends. Um, I just started feeling like I was getting comfortable in that car as, as different and unique as it was to the F3 that I was driving. And um, it was kind of plucked out uh, from underneath me. And, and, and my only criticism, I thought Alan Jones as a, as a figurehead was, was fantastic. He was so insightful. And I think Alan's a bit misunderstood because he's um, the amount of, yeah, the amount of insight that he had on race day uh, he'd chime in at the right times with the right information. He's he's a huge, he's a huge wealth of knowledge, and and I don't think you see that until you're in that in that space, that environment, at a racetrack with his involvement, and and he's hungry for it as well. But but yeah, as my only criticism of of the Australian team was the the bloody chopping and changing of of drivers. Um, it will. You know, both Wills, Will Power, Will Davison, I think, did one or two races each. Uh, Marcus Marshall, Christian Jones, Ian Dyke did a, a race or two. John Martin, myself. Nathan Antunes was in the mix at one point. Um, Barton Mao more, more um, tested the car. You, you were never in the car long enough to get comfortable and confident where, where you actually had conviction to go out and do the job. And that's one thing reflecting on some of the other teams, the New Zealand team, they stuck with their drivers through the entire stint that A1GP was, was in existence with Matt Halliday and Johnny Reid. There are a couple of others, I think, in the mix, but you're in, there, in the seat in a really unique car long enough to, to feel really confident in it. And um, I had moments of that confidence, but not for a continued or prolonged period of time. And um, I still look back and love that car. If I could drive that car again, I absolutely would. Um, some of the most physical races of my life were, were in that car. It was a really physical car. Taupo in New Zealand, I, I came back and my hands were bleeding uh, um, just from holding on, just from holding on to the steering wheel. So no power steering? But, no power steering. A uh, hell of a lot of aero, uh, mechanical grip. Um, and as I said at the start, pretty agricultural, ag agricultural in its um, in its setup and geometry as well. Maybe we we're running a lot of caster or something, but it was it was a seriously physical car. Yeah, right. Uh, next thing on my list is uh, you did 2008 Daytona 24 hour. How did how did that come about? Cool, ex I mean, cool experience. Unbelievable experience. Um, it was my first proper endurance race. The only 24 hour event I've ever. I've ever done a Daytona in a in a Pontiac GTOR, which is basically a Monaro. Monaro, it's yeah. a Monaro. <laughs> so there's a bit of an Aussie Aussie twist with that. It was an it was a the predecessor uh, predecessing model. Um, the who was the company over in the states that built those chassis? I can't remember the name, but there was a new model that they were debuting at the 24. They were the um, the previous generation, so um, it had a, it was a slipperier car in a straight line, which was was beneficial at Daytona, but but pretty rough compared to the new one from a from a setup standpoint. And uh, it came about that year, two thousand and eight. We didn't know what we were going to do. I think I by that stage I'd come to the realization we'd we'd exhausted every avenue and every possibility to continue down the European pathway. 
we're looking at budgets for the next step up from F3. And while I had a great experience in A1GP, I thought, you know what, take what I've learned and um, maybe try something new, maybe with a roof over my head. And it uh, wasn't that simple as decision, of course, but something along those lines. And um, I tested the car in De December of, of 2007 and enjoyed it. I had a crash in testing through the a high speed left hander. And I remember dropping wheel on the exit and just firing to the infield. Um, I haven't mentioned many of my accidents, but like most drivers, there's, there's plenty of them, let me tell you. <laughs> I'll try um, not to dwell on them. <laughs> no, I'm happy to talk about them. Um, and all the excuses that come with it. But that, <laughs> that, that one was a genuine stuff up. I dropped a wheel on the exit of a very fast corner. And that was unfortunately the end of the, uh, the test day. But we came back strong in January. And um, I had a great teammate, an Italian driver by the name of Diego Alessi. We're, we're very similar in, um, in pace, but being the more experienced driver, we nominated him to qualify the car. And out of I can't remember how many cars there were in, in the GT class. Because at the time, there were two different classes. There was a prototype category. Um, and then there was the GT category. I think it's a bit more com complex now with the different classes within. But uh, we qualified third, which was a um, huge effort on, on Diego's behalf. He got a clean lap in, time to toe to perfection, down one of the straights for an extra tenth or two. And... Um, yeah, I, I started the race. No, no, sorry. Diego started the race because whoever qualified had to start. Diego started the race. And um, we, just the, the cool thing about a 24-hour race, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure story. <laughs> no I was dying no, those things. <laughs> no two stories are alike. <laughs> and, and our story, um, the second the, uh, the green flag dropped, it all went pear-shaped. The... Um, one of the mechanics who got to put the bonnet clip on clip in on one of the sides of the bonnet oh. and the bonnets cracked open and eventually snapped the other bonnet clip. So Diego's lost the bonnet. Um, he couldn't see, he's had to pit, we've lost time. And it's pretty much, how do you recover from that? So it was just recovery from that point. Um, there was so many different things that went wrong. We spent more time, I, I felt, no, in reality it wasn't, but we spent a lot of time in the pits. Um, I did my stints on track, had a hell of a time. Uh, don't think I had an iota of sleep the entire 24-hour race. I wanted to, but it's hard to settle your nerves and, and walk away from it and, and just switch off. And, and when you do walk away and try to have a sleep, you walk back and the whole situation's changed again. You, you, need, a, you need someone to fill you in on, on everything that's happened. But... It, one really cool part about that race, a little story <clears throat> that I'll always remember. Um, the first time I think I've ever thought, what am I doing uh, in this situation right now in, in a race car? It was, it was three o'clock in the morning. I was on a double, doing a double stint and you, you become sort of very rhythmical at that time of night. Um, your body clock's telling you that you should be asleep, but you've got this adrenaline that's kind of conflicting heavily with your body clock. Um, your warp speed around this fantastic circuit and it starts raining. I'm out there on slick tires and I'm slipping and sliding around and, and just tense because of the situation. And 
you, you get these glaring headlights of the prototype cars, which are significantly faster coming through. And at that moment, I remember coming onto the, uh, onto the banking for the, um, in the wet, slipping and sliding around, thinking, what the hell am I doing? What, this is ridiculous. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm tired. <laughs> I want to go to bed. It's pissing with rain now. I'm on slick tires. This is not right. I'm driving like this. <laughs> How freaking cool is this? <laughs> yeah, as well. It's the funny thing about the banking is you're, you're actually looking up. Um, it's, it's a weird visual. It's, it's a little confusing the first time. But yeah, that was a neat experience. And I was lucky. I, I got to finish. We did finish the race, which I think it would be nice to have a result. But I learned that just to, just to complete a 24-hour race is a massive achievement in itself. And uh, to see that chequered flag at the end and our pace was still quite strong, uh, even at the end of the race, missing probably still missing a bonnet, <laughs> I'd imagine. Um, that was a great experience. And uh, I remember the flight home. I think I had the best night's sleep of my entire life the following night afterwards. I think there was a, probably a party afterwards as well. Um, which you feel obliged to go to on, a, on an event like yeah. that. The night after that, that I, uh, I had the best night's sleep in my life. And um, yeah, some great memories. And that, that led into my first season of supercars in, in development series. You just um, did my segue for me. Picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was, it was a good opener. Um, it was a, I actually tested in 2007 with Dick Johnson Racing. Will Davison and Stevie J were the drivers with the, uh, the Jim Beam team at the time. And um, they both came out and were you know, super supportive and helpful. Both my brother and I, my brother was still racing at the time. And we both got a chance to turn some laps. And Adrian Burgess was obviously the, um, the team manager. And that was my first actual taste of driving a car with a roof over my head. And it was just, it was a weird feeling coming from an open wheeler. But but something I definitely enjoyed the challenge of. Um, mentioned Daytona. That led to racing in, uh, in the development series, which was, I forget the, the naming right, sponsor back in 2008. But again, Conica? that's... Uh, pardon? Would have been Conica back then? Doesn't really matter, but whatever. I think it was just after Conica. Maybe yeah, it was okay. just Fujitsu yeah. Supercar Series. Anyway, uh, yeah, Clips of 500. Um, it was still called the Clips of 500. People still call it that. Um, great marketing right there. Um, first event, I went with Howard Racing. Great team of guys. Um, yeah, had a ball with them throughout the year. Dean Canto was my teammate. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, if you know Dean. <laughs> so, he, he was actually a great mentor to have because he'd done so much time in supercars. He'd actually competed in the main game and uh, lost his opportunity with, uh, with GRM and was basically forced back into, into the development series and was, was awesome to have him um, as a sidekick. Um, I don't know what to say about Dean. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a funny bloke. He's one of the, the charismatic guys up and down the grid. Um, says, says what he thinks is all the time. But um, he was he was good value. Um, so Adelaide uh, first round. That was a tough weekend because um, uh, there was a death in my race uh, turn eight that year, which is you, you always think you're invincible as a driver. I talked about the risks earlier. Uh, it's really close to home when 
someone in your own race actually dies. Um, it was Ashley Cooper, I think, from memory. It was uh, it was tragic, and I, uh, you know, people have been hurt before, and I'd had my fair share of injuries. I'd broken my back in two thousand and three, and um, in a pretty big open wheel accident, and lacerations and trips to the hospital and green whistles and ambulances, you name it, from carting all the way through. I had my fair share, but um, when that happened, it was, yeah, a bit close to home and I, I really struggled with it at the time. Um, the results were, were quite respectable for my first weekend in a supercar. Um, yeah, that was the first properly, like legitimately life, life challenging thing I think I'd ever had to kind of deal with. And, uh, yeah, for some that might have been just, you know, not necessarily water off a duck's back. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but but for me personally, that was a challenging thing to overcome. And uh, yeah, um, that we from that point, I actually spoke to the to Gary, the uh, the chaplain uh, for supercars about it. Um, I'm I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not overly uh, uh, religious. <laughs> You're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. Uh, <laughs> But um, it was just good to have him as a bit of a sounding board to just talk about that sort of stuff at the time. And um, yeah, uh, ended up having a, a pretty good year. Ended up getting Rookie of the Year. Um, had some great battles, Dave Reynolds and uh, and Tim Slade. And Marcus Zukanovic was in there as well. Um, I forget who went on to win that series. I think Trimble was in there as well. It was, it was a good year. It was nice to get the Mike Cable... Um, Rookie of the Year award in my first year in supercars. And uh, yeah, at that stage, at the end of that year, while it was a cracking year and we're really happy with everything we'd achieved, first year with a roof on my head, because um, you basically start from scratch again in, in a lot of ways. The race craft is different. You, I remember rubbing wheels for the first time and calling through on the radio, panicking, thinking, you know, I was, I was missing a wheel. And I said, mate, there's barely a scratch on the car, press on. And that's just the way it was. And it, it takes a while to get used to that. We're an open wheeler. You rub wheels and you, most of the time you're, you're in a fence. Um, 2009, basically had, had no funding, no funding, no money, and didn't know what we were going to do. And it was a bit of a scary thing um, when this is all you've done for a period of your life well what am I going to do now and I remember I think going back to complete my uh, engineering um, uh, degree whatever you want to call it and um, Bridie actually uh, I got the call up from Bridie who was in the Fujitsu colors that year and had seen what I'd done in uh, 2008 in, in the development series and and basically gave me a leg up an opportunity to drive with him in the Enduros it was a Stone Brothers run car so I had some Great teammates. Um, it was a satellite operation, but very much under the Stone Brothers um, umbrella. And learned so much that year. Um, it was, yeah, learning off Bridie. He, he was a, yeah, he's a wealth of experience. He's won a lot of races in his time. And um, he, he was a great teammate. Um, we had some mixed results. It was Phillip Island and Bathurst. At the time, there were only two events for the, um, the enduros. I did manage to squeeze into a into a development series car at Sandown, uh, run by uh, McElray, 
Andy McElray and uh, had a had a hoot with those guys. They're a they're a great team as well. Um, yeah, and then that led to the opportunity with Brad Jones Racing first full time year in um, <clears throat> 2010. I was like, my first Bathurst experience was actually with Michael Patrizzi in 2008 in the satellite operation run by Jim Morton, um, who did so many things for, for so many young drivers coming through. And uh, Grant Daniel was supposed to drive with Michael Patrizzi that year. But uh, if you remember, Grant actually drove a monster truck and broke his back, <laughs> cracked his back. So um, you know what they say, someone else's, uh, right. the saying, misfortune, take- someone else's, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, but, well, I got- one thing I'm interested about is coming, like, like you said, 2007, you'd just come out of a 550 horsepower, you know, 600 kilo wings and flicks car. And you've got to remember, these were, these were still old school supercars, weren't they? H-pattern, crash box, you know, lock diff, still production body shells, more or less. Like, do you get it and go, what the hell, are, what the hell is this thing? Like, how long does it take you to sort of adapt and get your head around this? Because re- you've, you've seen, like, over the years, some really, really amazing drivers really struggle to get the best out of these things so is it hard yeah it's you talk about uh, right back to the start i talked about the ability to adapt and uh you first jump into one of these things and it doesn't feel right i think is is this it (laughs) am i doing something wrong (laughs) surely not um i remember complaining about it oversteering through turns one and two at um, Queensland Raceway. The first time I drove it with um, at the guise of, um, under the guise of uh, Adrian Burgess. And I remember the conversation and I said, it's, I'm just reacting to it, oversteering. Um, it feels like it's oversteering, but only like in a, not in a macro way. It's not like a big armful of, of lock I'm having to catch. I'm just doing these little catches of oversteer. And he said, mm, mate, I, I think you'll find that's just the sidewall of the tire moving around. And that's all it was. At the time, we were on the 17-inch wheel before they went to the 18. And, and I just couldn't believe how boat-like it felt compared to an open wheeler. And, and to be honest, the, the A1GP car felt somewhat boat-like compared to an F3 car, which was you know just about the perfect car you could ever imagine. But despite its... Um, imperfections uh, as far as supercars go what i really enjoyed was the challenge of it the fact that it wasn't the perfect race car like an f3 or an open wheeler it has flaws you know the the locks the lock diff um for one um the way you had to drive it was different and you had to drive around some of those issues and flaws and there were some interesting tricks with the engineering that you you kind of picked up over the years that Seemed a little bit counterintuitive at times, but yeah, yeah I, I love the education of, of, of both the engineering and driving side of, of, of adapting to a supercar. Oh, one thing, as someone who uh, obviously grew up in karts yourself, John Bauer once told me that you kind of set up a supercar like a go-kart. You want it to sort of pitch and like almost lift its inside rear wheel to get the thing, because obviously it's got a, lock, got a lock diff, it inherently wants to go straight. So you set it yeah. up kind of like a go-kart and drive like a go-kart to really get it to pivot and sort of lift its wheels up, which kind of sounds weird. If you, see, if you looked at the two and went, 
tiny go-kart, massive supercar, you wouldn't think there'd be any crossover, but there's kind of a weird engineering yeah, similarity. There's some truth to it. With a lock diff, it, the, if you wanted better rotation, you, you had to unload the rear more. But but it's a, at the same time, it's a bit of a simplistic way of looking. <laughs> it, it's, um, oh, they're com- complex cars when you're talking about roll centres and all of that. I'd never, never touched roll centre, I, I think, prior to, um, as far as I was aware, in, in open wheelers. It was, you know, shock absorbers, um, aero, ride heights. You can adjust the weight distribution in, in a Formula 3 car as well. Um, pretty much the, the, the basics, different spring rates, uh, anti-roll bars, as I said. But, but this thing, we're talking roll centres and other weird and wacky and wonderful um, tuning tools. And again, talk about the education. You're like, you're, you're bamboozled at first. You just don't know what they're talking about. You, you just have to try these things. And, and the test days, I remember I was still living in Perth at the time. And I remember doing single, single test days where I'd, I'd travel over, do the, the five or six hour flight, whatever it is, from one corner of the country to the opposite corner the night before a test day do a full test day and then fly back that, that evening to Perth and um, debrief over the phone with the, with the team. But those, those test days were invaluable. And I think that's the really hard part about supercars um, for the young guys at the moment, as well as back then compared to you know, the, the SCAFI days where they could just test whenever they wanted, as much as they wanted, throw as many tires at it as they needed. Um, trying to get up to speed is, is a challenge, which is why I see that a lot of the, these these young blokes at the moment, when they want to get into, when they hell bent on having supercars as their career choice, they get into it as early as they possibly can and they, they stick it out for a period of time. The trouble is they, they do lose out on that, that adaptability that I, that I spoke about. You look at, you look at Van Gears, what he does. He's, he's a machine. He'll, yeah. he'll race a remote control car on one weekend, a drift car the next supercar on another and then do a rally or a tug or I don't know, like just yeah. whatever the hell he can get his hands on. And that's what it's all about. That, that's what makes you a versatile, holistic, well-rounded driver. And, and to me, he's, he's one of the best drivers on the planet at the moment for that very reason. Absolutely. Um, we'll get back into supercars in a minute, but I just wanted to pick up on something you said, like that crash in the crash of your colleague in 2008 was a life-changing experience. And you sort of you had your own. I've sort of avoided the crashes because you know they happen. Racing car drivers, but one of the biggest ones was obviously 2011 at Barbagello, um, where you had a really bad crash on the start line, burns, lots of fire, and all that sort of thing. Was that another one? Like, did it affect you? I watched some interviews at the time, and you sort of took it pretty well. Like, scary situation, but happened. Move on. But looking back on it now, was that? like that 2008 moment, a moment where you go, oh shit, this stuff's actually, this is for real. Or it just happened because it happened to you. You're just like, oh, well, that was a bugger. Let's, let's move on. I think I swayed with my feelings about that accident. Um, yeah, I had moments where of realisation where I, it could have been worse and I don't even want to contemplate what the outcome might have been had I been, you know, KO'd in the car or um, spinal injury or something like that, where I was basically, if I was left immobile in, inside that 
burning car, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation, yeah. frankly, yeah. being really upfront. At the same time, um, yeah, I, I got out. It was it was a pretty long 17 seconds from mm-hmm. impact to, to exit. Um, at, immediately after, you, you're full of adrenaline, and I don't I don't think I've ever really spoken about this what I'm about to say but I remember being in a lot of discomfort a lot of pain my hands my face I'd I'd cracked my visor open at the start of that race so my my eyebrows and my face was quite badly burned as well as my hands and 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 a spot on my leg and they'd rushed me to the med center after all the the chaos on track and um I remember I remember thinking in the med center um doctors all around me huge amount of pain and the only thing i could think about was is the car going to be ready for the next race <laughs> that's it and that's that's the adrenaline that's the mindset of a, of a driver because I, I remembered i qualified really well for the next race i was inside the top 10 uh i'd had a season best result the previous day in, in i think sixth um sixth place or fifth or sixth place i think the previous day um and then I qualified really well for the Sunday afternoon race. And obviously Bridie and, and um, Jason Barguana, Bargs, my teammate, went on, both had podiums. We had a really great car. So all I could think about in the med center was they've got to get the car ready. Little did I know until I saw the actual replay that the, the thing was a bloody, it's a paperweight now. Yeah. There's nothing more paperweight. It still is a paperweight to this day. So I think it's still sitting in a BJR workshop. But so that's, that's when I say when my feelings sway, Initially getting out of the car, you don't think about what could have been. It's not till you sort of reflect upon it later that you realise, shit, that could have been quite bad. Yeah. Um, but at the yeah, initially, you're sort of you're still in that bulletproof kind of mindset. And then I got to hospital. Had a, I think had a police escort, which was completely unnecessary. Um, got to the Joondalup hospital, and I'm laying in the bed, and they're talking about you know, operations and skin grafts. And I was seeing Dr. Fiona Wood, who had only, you know, a few years prior been, she was the burns specialist for the Bali bombing victims. So she was considered and regarded and still to this day as being the one of, if not the best burns specialist in the world. So I knew I was in in good, um, um, you know, I was being looked after, but I remember sitting in my, my, my bed at the hospital dosed up to the eyeballs and whatever they give you in hospital. And I remember watching the replay and it was probably at that moment. I was like, far out. <laughs> that could have been a lot worse. I'm actually, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm seriously lucky. Yeah. And then, then the weeks after um, you go through waves of, of ups and downs. And, and I think like, like any sporting injury and really that's what it was. It's a sporting injury. It's no different to a, an AFL player, an NRL player tearing a, an ACL or something. It's, it's, I guess, any amount of, of, sort of bouncing back from adversity um, as, a, as a professional athlete is about, I think a big part of it is getting back on the horse as quickly as possible. And I think that was really important for me. So I think there was a three-week gap between the Barbagella round and the next round at Winton. And they, they, the crew at BJR was sensational. Sam, I got to make special mention for sam he's a superstar um he was the first one who actually he decked me to the ground he's probably looking for the first opportunity just just to spear tackle me but um 
um, he was on the case to um, to rebuild, you know, to, to build a new chassis and take all what was salvageable out of that car into the new one. It actually cracked the carbon fiber seat in half, the impact, it was 37 Gs, I think. So you think of it, it's an FIA homologated carbon fiber seat and there was a crack through the back of it. That's how big the force was. So the, so the fact that I don't have a spinal injuries, I don't know, I think I'm just lucky, frankly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were, they were on the case of building the car in preparation for Winton. Um, I knew that was gonna be covered. I needed to get back behind the wheel of something quickly, as quickly as I could, but at the same time, couldn't just jump back into something because of the, this, you know, the pain that I was in um, with, with the burns and burns are horrible. Um, all the injuries I've had as a, as a, as a young bloke growing up with, you know, BMX accidents and, you know, knocking my teeth out on skateboards and stupid stuff on farms, burns are the worst. So um, yeah, um, I ended up jumping back into a series one, 997 cup car at Barbagella two weeks later with a lot of painkillers, special gloves underneath my fire retardant, fire retardant gloves. And uh, that was the, the best medicine to get back into a race car off the back of everything that had happened. Um, just club level motorsport, fun car. One, I love that car, 997 cup car. In fact, I'd, I'd like to get myself one of those. <laughs> years if I, if I can afford one but um yeah and then that led to Winton and for me Winton was all about just getting back into that headspace I knew that people would want to talk about it and I was happy to talk about it um I was just happy to be back in the car mate really really happy just to be back in and and, and just grateful for that for that opportunity and to have such a good team around me not to do the the race car driver spiel no, there, but the, the guys were um the guys were sensational at the time. We could probably do a, we probably should do a whole other podcast on the supercar stuff because I don't really want to skim over it per se, but <clears throat> like we could do another two hours on supercars. But so we might do that another day in depth. But I just wanted to know like, very talented driver, you know, you've proven your worth in all sorts of stuff, DVS, open wheelers, but like, for, you know, with greatest, you know, Jamie Wincup, you know, has seven titles. You, what sort of went back, I went back and looked at your results and stuff like that. And for a few different things I've been doing recently, looking at some Fiat supercar calendars. And it's amazing how many amazing drivers, like you're not always just at second and third, you're 14th, you're 18th, you're 6th, you're third, you're ninth. Like it's so hard. So, so while we'll do pop, pop supercars later, can you maybe talk about how competitive that is? Obviously you're a great driver. You're trying your best. But it just seems like it's such a hard category to do well in consistently because you can have, you can be, you know, you can be Mark Scaife or someone at the top of their game, yet you'll be 18th and 20th one round and, you know, you're just battling. So how hard is it to sort of keep your motivation and keep your drive when you're not always necessarily standing on the podium? It's bloody difficult. It really is. I... Uh, I remember some of those mid-seasons trying to dig deep and find find the energy to to, to give it absolutely everything. When I remember a race at Queensland Raceway one year <clears throat> with um, with Brad Jones Racing, it must have been the second year with those guys, and 
I had to talk about John Bauer. John Bauer was sort of mentoring that weekend. Um, he mentored for a few rounds or coached, whatever you want to call it. And um, I remember finishing up the race and we finished, I think it was 19th. And I remember, I guess, analysing my, my performance, the car performance, the team's performance, because everything you know, contributes to the, uh, the overall performance. And I remember thinking, I've just finished 19th. And I can honestly say, with the exception of a tenth of a second here and there, maybe half a second in the pits, I, it was, there's no such thing as a perfect race or a flawless race, but there wasn't much more I could have done to improve that result. Like it was as, as good as it could have been. I felt like I extracted the absolute most out of that car on that day, every corner of every lap for the, you know, every stint for that entire race for 19th place. And that that's debilitating at times when, when it happens. And, and I still hand, you know, hand on heart believe that supercars is the most competitive series on the planet. It, it's not just because I've been in there. You look at the guys that have come in, some really seasoned campaigners that have come in from overseas with expectations of doing well and just haven't. Um, but then at the same time, you look at the supercar drivers that have gone to race in other categories and done really well um, quite quick. You look at Van Giz and, and Mostert who have gone over and, and done some GT races. Um, I, I really think it's, it is... And, and the times are reflective of it. You, this is my subjective um, opinion of it, but the, the quantifiable components, the, the, the lap times, the difference in lap times from 1st to 20th or 1st to 25th or however many are on the grid on a given year are reflective of it being what I say as, as the most competitive series on the planet. And there some some results that I had that I probably didn't, feel like I deserved because I knew that I'd made mistakes along the way, um, whether they were micro or macro. Um, times where that's it, the, the bittersweet, everyone talks about how bittersweet motorsport is and that's, that's really the experience. You have more times where you're losing than, than you are winning. Even, even the best, look at Win Cup. Statistically, he's lost more than he's won. Yeah. Um, and that's the frustrating thing about the sport. And I, and I don't want to sound, you know, do the whole cliche thing, but it's what it really does make the good days, the better days feel that much, that much better. Yeah. The, the, that result at Barbie Gala the day before I had my big crash where I finished, I think it was sixth off the top of my head. It was this huge sense of elation from not only, you know, from, from a personal perspective, but the whole team, everyone that's, you know, the guys do stupid hours in the workshop. If, um, if, if Fair Work found out what was actually going on with <laughs> teams, they'd have a field day. But um, if, yeah, these, these guys work their backsides off as well. They're, the, uh, they're the, quiet, the quiet achievers in the background. And I remember that feeling. It was just a great feeling. And for some of these guys, a sixth place they'd be disappointed with. But, but even still, to, for the guys that do it week in, week out, I, I just, I take my hat off to them. But it's the it's the, ent the entire environment that they're in. It's not just 
they obviously understand the cars well. I think the current spec car uh, has a bigger window for for setup. The the, the my experience in in the pre predecessing car was um, the, the window was really small. Um, the, the final year at Kelly Racing, if it was ever so slightly out of the window, it was. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to anyone there. We had some really clever people, but if it was outside of the window, it was a steaming pile of, you know, what? <laughs> Dan, Dan Gaunt and I at Sandown, I swear we had a headache for a week off the back of that event. It was like riding a, a bucking Bronco onto the front straight at Sandown. And then, yeah, then people think, oh, it's, it's just the circuit. He doesn't get on with the circuit. I've had some great results, some of the best results in my career at Sandown. So it's not... Yeah. The circuit, the the cars back then were really fickle to to uh, to set up and set up appropriately and uh, and and have it consistently in that window. And obviously, the front teams managed to do it more regularly. But I think we saw a lot more fluctuations in performance back then um, as well. Now it's I think because there is a broader window for setup, it is just so damn competitive. Um, Has its know, own challenges. Has its own challenges in itself. It means that the race craft, the overtaking, becomes a lot more more important when you're only a tenth of a second faster than the guy in front of you. You have to create opportunities. Um, if you're half a second a lap quicker than them, the opportunities come. It's easy. Yeah. You just you've got the pace on them. So um, yeah, I think I love the category still. Uh, everything about it and. Um, well, let's yeah. go into a, we'll go into more depth about because there's some really interesting stuff there about how you like the window of a supercar. I think people will be interested in that. But let's move on now to finish off um, your current life working for Motorsport Safety Rescue. You do a lot of car launches with various manufacturers. Um, you know, that's where we see each other these days: Mercedes, Porsche, Audi, all sorts of stuff. Um, so maybe just talk briefly about what you do now. What's what's Car Rindler doing now? Yeah, so yeah, I think you introduced me at the start of this as race driver. I, I can I can say I am not a race driver anymore. There you are. Uh, <laughs> it, it probably doesn't go away, but um, yeah, I uh, I've made a transition to the automotive industry is, is the simplest way of putting it. I think back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, I started I'd started doing some some work outside of motorsport to. To pay the bills because you're not earning that much money um, early on in, in, in your career. We're um, <laughs> not earning that much in a motorsport career compared to an <laughs> AFL career. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I I enjoyed doing those those sorts of days um, working with with manufacturers. I enjoyed teaching people as well. I, I, something I've, I've always really enjoyed is is communicating a message, trying to something that I understand really well. It, we always joke around about, I think it was Pizzardi that mentioned, mentions this in every, every speech he's ever done, that you can have the best AFL player, um, you know, who goes into a coaching role, but it doesn't mean that to say he's actually going to be a good coach because he could actually kick a footy well. And the same goes with, um, with motorsport and driving. And that's something I've, I think I've really enjoyed over the years is, is the coaching, the teaching, being an instructor. Um, in so many different ways, there's, there's obviously high performance days. There's um, days with with P plate P plate drivers as well. Um, I've I've coached someone with hand controls at Sandown before 
someone who had motor neuron disease. So coaching in all sorts of weird and wacky and wonderful, wonderful ways. And, and they all present challenges. And communi communication is such an interesting thing. It's not just what you say or how you say it. Um, you know, I've, I've been lucky to do coaching overseas as well um, with what was the Confederation of Australian Motorsport, now Motorsport Australia, and the FIA. I've run training programs in Romania, Sri Lanka, um, South Korea, China, where else, where else? Nepal, um, basically teaching, teaching people to drive at various levels, but also teaching people to be teachers, train the trainer sort of stuff as well. And I find it really interesting. Um, and it's amazing how you can still communicate with someone, even if you don't talk the same language as them. And that's something that is fascinating when you, when you're coaching someone in a high performance, you know, in South Korea two years ago, at the BMW driving center there and the bloke beside me didn't speak a word of English. And we were still, I was still able to communicate a message and coach to him. And, and I've really enjoyed that side of things. And that's, that's led to some really cool opportunities um, all around the world. Uh, I mentioned some of those countries also been to Austria, um, Steve Pizzardi with, with the Audi driving experience in Australia took a group of us to Austria a few years ago, which I'm uh, hugely <laughs> grateful for. And, uh, I have a question about what, that in a moment. You might know what it's about. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I can start plotting and scanning my response. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Um, I've had some really, uh, I feel really privileged to have had the opportunities that I've had to go around the world to coach and, and do some fun things with some great cars some great people. And there's a lot of camaraderie, both in motorsport and, um, and the automotive side of things as well. And yeah, I, um, as I said, I'm grateful for every opportunity I've had and I really enjoy doing the work I'm currently doing. Um, obviously the challenges that you're, uh, you're faced with along the way uh, from a safety perspective, looking Looking at the bigger picture, um, yeah, it's led to some really fun things. Speaking of colleagues, I have some questions. We'll close now with some questions from your colleagues. Uh, I won't say who they'll protect their identity, at least publicly. <clears throat> let, um, me, uh, let me clear my, clear my throat. <laughs> right. So the first one, uh, why are you called Gonzo? I know he's put you up to this. And, uh, <laughs> Where do I start? I'd love to say it's because I broke my nose at a racetrack a long time ago, but it's not, and I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. Okay, We're not for public, uh, not for public uh, consumption. Clearly, that one. Um, yeah, I'm also I did break asked, my nose at Barbagallo, though. So let's. Okay, let's, fair enough. Yeah, the untrue um, answer. A number of your colleagues were amazed this would even happen because they were guaranteed you'd never call me back. Um, we. Apparently, uh, a VW Sirocco once got bogged at Phillip Island. How about, how about we tell that story? Yeah, like it was, it was wet at Phillip Island to paint, paint the picture. It was, um, it was a setup morning. So we're out on track, setting up all the exercises for a Volkswagen driving experience. And um, you've, you've driven a Sirocco, I take, at some stage. Okay. Um, everyone thinks front-wheel drive cars understeer, and I can assure you, if you try hard enough, they don't understeer. <laughs> they reach a point where they stop understeering, and when it uh, when it releases uh, in oversteer, it releases pretty hard. I'd, I'd forgotten that I'd turn the stability control off at um, 
Siberia corner, just to get a feel for the group, which is common practice. You're out there, you're not just having a, having a laugh. You're genuinely out there trying to understand the cars better. It's not just uh, fun and games. But one of the guys had set up a high-speed lane change basically at the hay shed. So that would be turn eight, I guess, at Phillip Island. And um, I forget who was in the passenger seat. Might have been Stevie J. Anyway, um, everyone's on the radios. And I said, oh, Carl, could you give this a crack? Just want to see what, you know, what the setup's like if we have to make any adjustments. This is my recollection of it. They, they might say it differently. Anyway, without even realising it, I've gone full attack into the high-speed lane change. In the wet, probably 80, 90K an hour. Stability control completely off. So the high-speed lane change, to, to paint a picture, it's basically swerving around an inanimate object. Um, so hard right, hard left. And before, before I even realised it, no chance in, in, you know, no chance in hell of catching this thing. I, I couldn't have attacked it any harder. And I was on the rack stop. And the thing was doing pirouettes. And anyway, being a, a wet and rainy Phillip Island, I ne- I've ended up off, off the road, uh, on the grass. I think it was only two wheels on the grass. Maybe, I, I don't know. It's, it's a bit vague, <laughs> a bit blurry, my recollection. But um, if it was only two, it was the driving wheels, the front ones. And um, there's a lot, of mud, a lot of mud all over the car. Everyone was there. There are lots of videos, lots of photos, lots of interviews. And you just, what do you do? You just go, you've got to own it, right? And, you know. At least you went out in style. All part of, all part of the fun and, and, and the education. We, we learned that uh, it was maybe a little pacey for, uh, you know, to, to throw at the customers coming that afternoon. Very so we good. probably made changes. But anyway, I took it back and apologised to Piz, who was really... Uh, yeah, he was always good about those things. Within reason, of course. We, we're not out there, you know, taking the mickey. We're, uh, we're actually out there, as I say, <laughs> trying to learn where we can and uh, got the high-pressure hose out and <laughs> got rid of all the mud off the side of it. Uh, on a similar theme, what were you thinking when you tried to drive a Mercedes down a ski run in Austria? I wasn't driving. I was you, in the past. Oh, you weren't driving, apparently. Oh, okay. This is the change of the story. How did or how did the uh, how did the white Mercedes wagon end up bogged to its axles? Then I've seen the I've seen the photos. What? So it's a how do I, where do I start? It was an Audi driving experience. It was a train the trainer program for Audi. So the fact that we had a Mercedes in the first place was was a bizarre. Um, well, not super bizarre. I think Daniel Gaunt. Um, to, to throw a name in there, who's probably the, probably the one who's thrown me under the bus with all of this uh, <laughs> response from you. Um, he was running late because he was testing a car or something. So he was two days late for this, um, this ice driving experience in Austria. And the rental car he got was this rear wheel drive. Um, must have been a C200 or something like that, Mercedes-Benz. Um, we'd been playing all day long on these beautiful open... Um, ice flats in this um, perfectly groomed training area in these, in these quattro vehicles. Got to the end of the day, well, Dan arrives halfway through the day in this Mercedes rental car and we're having our fun on the snow and ice and um, having a ball. And anyway, got to the end of the day and I said, 
I don't think Dan knew where the village was, um, where we were staying uh, to come back for the training the following day. I said, mate, I'll jump in with you and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go together. Anyway, um, the others have left and we've taken off and we're, we're driving slowly and it gets to a fork in the road. And deep down, I knew that we had to go right, but for some reason I told him to go left. I don't know why or what led me to this, but I told him to go left. It was a cross-country <laughs> cross ski trail in a rear-wheel drive sedan <laughs> in, in basic, you know, blizzard, blizzard-like weather. And we'd got a fair way down this path and, and got stuck. And I said, mate, this is the way out. We have to go this way. You're just going to have to approach it with a bit more momentum. So Dan's backed it up and guns blazing wide up to the throttle. I think he had the traction off as well. There's rooster tails of snow coming off the back. <laughs> and we have committed so hard and he's just kept it pinned. And um, anyway, this thing was bellied out on the snow, bogged. And, like a uh, hole. And, and the guy's the guys must have known that we weren't behind them, turned back around and, and realised that we'd gone the wrong way. And I, I never owned up to, <laughs> to telling him it was the wrong way <laughs> uh, or knowing it was the wrong way. But we, for the first time, <laughs> first time in a long time, they had to get the tractor out to tow this Mercedes Benz out of the, um, out of the snow. And uh, yeah, it was... Oh, well, uh, at least you weren't driving. At least I wasn't driving. So I threw Dan under the bus like he's probably thrown me under the bus for these other stories. Well, speaking of driving, let's finish off because there are some guys who are, like, I've met a few racing drivers and some guys are racers. They, like, live for the competition, right? And I'm sure you're a competitive soul, but I'd put you in the driver's segment. You love driving a car. Like, you don't, yep. need, to, you don't need to have cars around you to enjoy you know, you enjoy what a car does, not just that competitive sport aspect. So yeah. just finish off by selling, like, you know, I've seen you on Porsche days and no matter what it is, um, if, 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 even if it's a mini moat, you're happy to drive it on its limit and try and get the best out of it. What, what about that process appeals to you in terms of trying to work with this machine to get it to do its ultimate uh, potential? It kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about... Uh, the ability to adapt to something really quickly, work it out, understand its idiosyncrasies and, and, and find, find the limit. It's not about going fast necessarily. Everyone thinks that you know, race drivers love going fast. It's, I don't know, going down a straight at warp speed doesn't really interest me. It's, it's, it's you know, picking the appropriate point to, to jump on the brakes, um, how the car responds to your inputs, whether it's the steering, the throttle, the brake, um, and the more raw it is, the better as well, you know, to, to turn everything off and really understand that the personality and the character of that given car. Um, I, I love that, that entire process and trying to, to find that absolute limit as, as quickly as I possibly can. And I've, yeah, with, I've always not only enjoyed it, but I guess without sounding um, like I'm blowing my own trumpet, I've, I've always sort of prided myself on my ability to to find the limit of a car um we did a we did a fantastic day recently at Sandown with a 
um, with a customer um, with, a, with a high performance car working working with some engineers and, and they asked me to go out there and basically do a couple of back-to-back -back comparisons with some some other drivers and and that that I love doing that sort of stuff and giving feedback to the engineers if I, I remember doing a Holden day years ago at Phillip Island and and the engineers are actually asking it must have been the was it the, the um, VF um, the motorsport edition when they had the motorsport the and there were director. two other ones yeah the same and the, the director and, yeah. so I, I did that press launch with Pizzati down at Phillip Island and, and to work hand in hand with the engineers who had actually designed that car it was one of the coolest things I reckon I've ever done to go out there and push this thing to the absolute limit and and, and pushed it to the point where there was an issue uh, that we that we actually found and to actually give that feedback to to one of the engineers for them to go back because it was I think it was pre-production still so they, they had a chance an opportunity to uh, rectify whatever that issue was at the time um, was was really fun so there's so many different combinations you can have with driving a car on the limit yeah front engine rear engine all-wheel drive front wheel drive rear wheel drive all-wheel steering um, high center of gravity low center of gravity and, and that's what I love about driving cars. Um, they, they all have a unique personality that, that you need to really, to find that personality, to get to know that car, to get well acquainted with it. There's only one way of doing it and that's to, to push it to a certain point, respectfully, of course. Um, yeah, um, I've had some, some really fun days doing that sort of stuff in some really exciting cars. I can, I can think of I'm lucky, mate. I'm really lucky. Um, yeah, as as uh, as you are, we get to do some really cool things in this industry. And uh, yeah, whether it's yeah on a racetrack or just a beautiful section of, of public road, obviously within the constraints of um, um, of, of the law, it's um, it's a it's a fun thing. And I I don't think I'll ever get old, ever get sick and tired of it. No, that's a good good place to end and sign off. Uh, Thank you very much for donating so much of your time on a very chilly Melbourne Friday night. Uh, stay safe, you and your family. And we'll, Where would you uh, rather be? <laughs> yes, right. We'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. Hope everybody enjoyed this podcast. And uh, you can follow Carl on all sorts of social media, basically at Carl Reinder, isn't it? Instagram and Twitter and stuff. So, yeah, yep, you'll find it. super active these days, but I'll try to ramp it up. No worries, mate. Thank you for your time. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Scott.